Our Father in heaven, Lord, you indeed are a good and gracious king. You are the king in need of nothing. And Lord, that is actually a, a truth that's very foundational to our hope, Lord, because we are mere creatures. We are but dust. Lord, if you lacked anything, how could we possibly, as creatures, hope to make up what you lack and earn your favor, Lord? Uh, we thank you that you don't need anything, that you satisfy yourself, Lord, that we don't even have to come trying to make atonement for our sin against you. You even provided that by yourself, for yourself, by your son becoming a man, living a righteous life that we could not live um, so that he could clothe us with his righteousness and then dying, taking our sins upon himself and offering up his own blood to make atonement for our sins, Lord, and you accepted his sacrifice by raising him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God with power, Lord. So we thank you that you don't need anything. And so we come here and we worship you and we sit before your feet to hear from your word, not to earn something from you, Lord, but simply knowing that you've saved us in Christ, we now want to live for you. We know that Jesus died for us so that we who live by your grace might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Lord, we recognize that we are very needy. We are so needy that only the infinite God can, can meet our need, Lord. And so we come to worship you alone as our God, and we pray you'd help us to know you better, even this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the book of Hebrews, we're looking at the last four verses of the whole book. So we're going to finish Hebrews this morning. And uh, yes, cries of relief and joy. So <laughs> yep, so verse 22 of Hebrews 13. He says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Um, we've come now to the end of the letter to the Hebrews. And as, we, as we've gone through this letter together, there have been many times where we have felt like we were in over our heads, as we've studied what the Holy Spirit has sovereignly moved this author, this preacher, to write to this ancient congregation of believers. And this preacher, this writer to this Hebrew congregation, he has plumbed the depths of the glories of our Savior and of our salvation. And at the same time, he's urged us never to turn away from Jesus, this Son as we saw in chapter 1, the Son through whom God has finally spoken in these last days. And as he draws his letter to a close and he bids his readers farewell until he sees them again, his gentle parting words to them draw our minds to three final considerations before we leave this book. And those three things that we're going to consider that these verses are going to cause us to consider are, first, the burden of truth. We'll see that in verse 22. Secondly, the balm, B-A-L-M, the balm of fellowship 
in verses 23 to 24, and then the buoy of grace, the buoy of grace in verse 25. So first, let's look at the burden of truth, verse 22. He says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The preacher urges his brothers and his sisters in Christ to bear with this word of exhortation. And as you think back on the whole letter, you'll remember that he has been writing this letter with great urgency. He's been telling these believers that their eternal souls are what is at stake right now. He's been straining to exalt Christ in their eyes through many different angles. Jesus is like a diamond that he's been holding forth to them, turning in the light, calling their attention to every single facet of that diamond. He's been trying to make them fall in love with Jesus all over again. And at the same time, he's been solemnly and frighteningly warning them against turning away from the Lord Jesus. He does not want this letter to go to waste. He doesn't want them to hear this letter read and then walk away saying, wow, good sermon, and then they remain unchanged. He wants them to bear with what he's been telling them. He w- and, and to bear something is to endure something, something that is difficult or unpleasant. That's what to bear means. He's urging them to bear with this letter that is most likely going to be difficult for them, unpleasant for them to hear. This letter has been a word of exhortation, that is, a sermon that he's been preaching to them in writing. And throughout this sermon, he's been expounding the word of God. We've seen how often he goes back to the Old Testament and explains those passages. And he's been telling them how they need to respond to the word of God in faithful obedience. And he's said some very hard things in this sermon. Some of the scariest passages of the Bible are concentrated right in this letter to the Hebrews. And some things that he's written have been hard to understand, like Melchizedek. Many of, I, I lost many of you going through that passage there. I was probably lost myself. That's why I lost you. And some of the things that he's written have been hard to hear and hard to accept. And some of them are hard to live out. And listening to the preaching of the Word of God is often this way. Yes, the preaching of the Word of God is often encouraging. It often brings us great joy. It's often enlightening. You know, we realize how much we don't know. But also, the preaching of the Word of God is often convicting and unpleasant to hear. It's often burdensome because we are not yet fully conformed to the image of Christ and our character and our behavior. We still sin. And in the Word of God, we are brought face to face with the Holy God and we feel the sting of His holiness as it encounters our own personal sinfulness. We still, as believers, experience the sinful desires of our flesh. And though our redeemed and inner man, our spirit, if we are Christians, we are made alive, we are new creatures inside, though that part of us always rejoices with the truth, 
At the same time, we still have this holdover of our old selves, our flesh that still fights against the truth and doesn't want to hear it. And it was no less the case with these believers that he's been writing to. That's why the preacher commands them to bear it, because he knows that there's going to be, for each individual believer, a part of them that is going to buck against what he's been telling them. So he urges them to bear it. And this bearing with truth, with hard truth, that is one of the marks of a true Christian. A true Christian will bear with hard truths. He will feel convicted by the word of God, and he will not want to stay the same. He will want to glorify God in that area of his life that the word of God has shown a spotlight on and shown that he's still in the grip of sin in that area, and he'll repent. She'll want to follow Christ in that area. A non-believer will not bear with hard truths. A non-believer may feel convicted by the word of God, but either he or she will get angry and gnash their teeth at what they've heard, or they'll ignore it because he loves his sin and he hates God. And this was certainly true of some individuals that Paul wrote Timothy about. He was warning Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can turn there. He was warning Timothy about some individuals that Paul knew eventually would crop up under Timothy's ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul charging Timothy. In verse 2 of chapter 4, he, he says to Timothy, preach the word. And then in verse 3, he warns him this. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure. That word endure, it's the same, way, same word for bear in Hebrews 13, 22. The time will come when they will not endure. They will not bear sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Unbelievers do not bear with hard truths. And so the question for you and I, you and me, is are you willing to bear up under sound doctrine? A perfect case study of this, of the difference between those who will bear with the truth and those who will not, we see a perfect case study of that in John chapter 6. So go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 6. As you turn there, you'll remember this chapter, Jesus has just finished working his miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 the day before. And the crowds the next day, they were so enamored by what Jesus had done that they tracked him down. And so Jesus sees this crowd coming, and he begins to lay on them some very hard truths. The crowds, they were looking for more free bread. They said, wow, that tasted good. Let's find him, and we can just spend the rest of our lives eating free bread from this guy. But Jesus told them that he himself was the bread of life who had come down from heaven, and that they should seek to eat him. He said they should eat his body and drink his blood. 
And in their spiritual deadness, they did not understand what he was saying to them, and they rejected the claim of Christ that he was from heaven. And in those crowds, there were many who professed themselves to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. They were following him at this time. And I want you to look at what these disciples say to Jesus after they've heard him say these hard truths. Look at verse 60 of John chapter 6. So Jesus has just got done declaring himself to be the the bread of heaven, exhorting them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and then they'll have eternal life. This is what they say in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, notice it's his disciples saying this, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? So some of his own disciples are having a hard time with these hard truths that Jesus is laying down. And I want you to see what Jesus says to these disciples in verse 64. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. Judas obviously is one of those, but it's others in this crowd who are having a hard time and grumbling against what Jesus is saying. Look at uh, verse 66 then. As a result of this, many of his disciples, not just the crowds, those who just happened along and got swept up in all the commotion, but many of his disciples, those who had been following Jesus, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So you see how they could not bear with Jesus' exhortation. They could not bear his hard truths, and they demonstrated that they actually were not true disciples at all. They were not true believers in Christ at all. Now I want to contrast that with Peter. Look at Peter in verses 68 to 69. In verse 67, Jesus asks his 12 who've been with him, who he called specially to, to be the ones to send out and to proclaim the kingdom, He says, you do not want to go away also, do you? And then listen to what Peter says in verse 68. He says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now Judas would continue to pretend belief in Christ for a bit longer before he also would leave But the other ten, along with Peter, they affirmed what Peter had said. They demonstrated that they were willing to bear with the hard truths of Jesus. I'm sure they did not fully understand what he was saying. But they showed that they were true disciples because they were willing to stick it out with Jesus because they knew, who else are we going to go to? You are it. You are the Messiah. Yeah, I might not understand fully what you're saying right now. Yeah, you might... uh, bring severe conviction upon me because of my sin, but I don't care. I want to be with you. You are my only hope. I'm going to stay with you. So that's, this is the mark. This is a mark of a true believer. 
We've abandoned all hope in everything else, everyone else, and we've put all our hope in Christ. So no matter how hard the word of God grates upon our flesh, we will stay with Jesus. And we will ask him to change us in those areas where we are being exposed. Back to Hebrews 13 and verse 22. He ends this verse by saying, Bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I have written to you briefly. Now, if you were to take the book of Hebrews and read it out loud, it would take about 45 minutes to an hour to read out loud. And the preacher calls it brief. Don't worry, I'm not going to take any cues from that. But he implies that there is so much more that he could say about this subject. Had the preacher written what he wanted to write about the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ, it would take hours to read this letter. There's so much more ink he could have spilled, so much more parchment paper he could have burned through, detailing to them the terrors of abandoning Jesus. And he's hinted at this throughout his letter, that he's got so much more to say. He's bursting with the greatness of the subject that he is expounding to them. Look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. In chapter 5, he's talking about how Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, Concerning him or concerning which we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Then go over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, in verses 1 through 5, he begins to give details about the tabernacle. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He was feeling very constrained about how long he could go on speaking of these things to these believers. And then lastly, chapter 11, where he, he spends this chapter illustrating what persevering faith looks like by going back to the Old Testament saints and describing their lives. And then in verse 32 of chapter 11, he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. So he's got so much he could say, so much more he could say. So in light of all that he's left unsaid, these believers and us would do well to pay much closer attention to what he has said. This subject of persevering in our faith in Christ, it's so important. We need to pay attention to it and not just walk away and forget what we've heard. So we need to bear with the burden of truth. When the truth that we are called to believe and to obey, when that truth becomes burdensome to us because of our sinful flesh and because of the hostility of the world that we're living in, you know, we, we hear what Scripture is calling us to believe, calling us the way it's calling us to live, and our sinful flesh doesn't really want to live that way, and then we, we, uh, we, we consider the world that we're living in, how the world doesn't want us to live that way, it can feel overwhelming at times. It is then when the soothing balm of fellowship 
often makes the difference between being able to bear the truth and not bearing it. So this brings us to the balm of fellowship. Verse 23, he says, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Now, in these concluding remarks, there's much here that we're not told. Apparently, Timothy had been imprisoned. But why was he imprisoned? We're not told. The preacher ends verse 24 by saying, Those from Italy greet you. Now, does that mean that the preacher is writing from Italy to these believers, and he's saying that the Italian believers with him are sending their greetings? Or does it mean that the believers he's writing to, they are the ones who are in Italy, and the preachers in some other country, and some members of that Italy-based church had gone with him, and they're sending greetings back home? We don't know. We won't speculate on all of that. There's too many gaps to fill in. These believers knew exactly what he was talking about. But what I want you to catch here is the close-knit familial relationships that these believers have with one another. He says in verse 23, he calls Timothy our brother. And it's obvious from these verses that the preacher is eager to fellowship with these believers. It's clear from the warm greetings that he is sending to this church family. This church is a family. There's an unbreakable bond that they have with one another in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. People say that blood is thicker than water. And by that they mean that your, your physical relations, who you're related to genetically, you're more committed to them than you are to an acquaintance or even a friend, a close friend. That when the chips are down, you're going to side with your family. Well, Christ's blood is even thicker than that of our physical relatives. We need each other. The body of Christ is supposed to be fiercely committed to each other because we're fiercely committed to Christ. Because we're so committed to Christ, we're committed to his body. If I say I love my wife and I don't take care of her body, I'm a liar. If I don't protect her, if I don't provide for her, if I love my wife, I will love her physical well-being as well, and I will do what I need to do to take care of that. It's the same way with the church. If we say we love Christ, but we are not caring for his body, that's what 1 John is all about. If we don't love our brother, how can we say we love God, whom we've not seen? We need each other. Imagine the difficulty of any one of these believers trying to endure the trials and temptations of persecution on their own. If they've been lone ranger Christians and all of a sudden the pressures come upon them from their society that, hey, you can't follow Jesus anymore, or I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to throw you in prison. How could they possibly endure that if they have not been uh, buttressed by the strength that they have gained from the rest of their, their fellow believers in Christ? God has designed his church in such a way that so much of the comfort, so much of the assurance, so much of the strength that he provides us comes through our relationships with our fellow believers. 
So often we grow weak in faith because we cut ourselves off from the strength that we derive through our family in Christ. That's what's made the pandemic so difficult for so many believers. So many have grown cold in their faith. They've stopped reading their Bibles. They've stopped praying. They've grown comfortable with the idea that fellowship isn't necessary. But that proves that it is necessary because they've stopped being passionate about Christ because they're like a coal that has been set aside from the fire and it's burning out on its own. We gain so much by being together. We fuel one another's passion for the Lord Jesus. We cannot endure alone. We need to take advantage of as many opportunities as we can to gather together with the body of Christ so that we may draw upon the strength of Christ through his body, the church. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We cannot encourage one another adequately if we are not together. Here at this church, we have Sunday school in the morning. We have Wednesday night Bible study. We have men's study on the second and third Thursday evenings of every month. We often have fellowship meals after Sunday service like today. Not to mention all the opportunities that you can create yourself by inviting one another over for meals and times of fellowship. Now you may say to me, but Josh, attending your men's study, it's like watching paint dry. I get that, but there is still so much benefit in being around other believers to pray for one another and to encourage one another. There really is very few excuses left to us for not gathering together more than 90 minutes out of a week. And you don't have to be a social butterfly with nothing else to do in order to do this. You simply have to place the same amount of importance upon it that the scriptures place upon it. And if you do that, you will make a way. You will find a way to get together. If you're running out of food in the kitchen, what do you do? You don't sit there and say, well, that's it. No, you go out. If you don't have a car, you, you flip over rocks to find bugs to eat. You do anything you can to get that sustenance. But do we view fellowship with the body of Christ that way? That brings us to the buoy of grace. In verse 25, he says, Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. The preacher's last statement in this letter is a farewell prayer for his beloved people. And this, this last sentence, that's something that we tend to read right over. We kind of see it so often at the end of these New Testament letters that we just think it's a canned response, you know, a canned statement that they just throw in at the end of every letter. But really, this this sentence is the central truth we need to grasp if we are going to be able to bear with this word of exhortation at all. How is it that we have come to know Christ in the first place? As rebellious sinners 
who have earned the wrath of God. What business do we have serving Jesus Christ and being sons and daughters of God? We've sang songs about being a friend of God. What business do we have being friends of the holy God? It's only by the grace of God that we are that. The grace of God is the unmerited favor of God. By definition, you cannot merit God's unmerited favor because it's unmerited. And instead, you have merited what? The wrath of God because of your sin. Do we understand that you do not become a Christian by being born to Christian parents? You do not become a Christian by doing enough good things to elevate yourself to the place that God says, oh, I guess I'll save him. He did enough. No, you become a Christian purely by God choosing to lavish his grace, his unmerited favor upon you. By his grace, he enabled you to see yourself for who you are, a wretched sinner. By his grace, he enabled you to see Christ for who he is, a glorious Savior. And he granted you by his grace the gift of repentance and faith to turn from your sin and to run to Christ for your salvation. And if you think that you became a Christian through any other means, then you are not yet a Christian. And you are still under the wrath of God. And I would plead with you to put your faith in Jesus, to beg him to grant you an unworthy sinner his mercy. And he delights to answer those pleas for mercy, and he will save you. But if you have come to Christ by the grace of God, through faith in him, do you think that you will stay with Christ that you will stay saved by any other means than the grace of God. No, you have been saved by grace, you are being saved by grace, and you will be saved by grace at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It never becomes based on works, ever. It's always by grace. By faith, we tread water in the turbulent waves of this world fighting to keep our heads above the sea of godlessness that is all around us. And sometimes it can feel like we're about to go under, like our faith is about to give out. But it is the buoy of God's grace that keeps our faith afloat. It's God's grace that keeps us believing, keeps us following the Lord Jesus Christ, even when we are speechless as to how it is that we are still following Christ. I want to illustrate this from the Gospel of John. There's three separate occasions recorded in the Gospel of John where Jesus testifies to us that ultimately he and his Father are the ones responsible for our perseverance in the faith. I want you to first go to John 6 again. John chapter 6. John 6 and verse 39. Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, speaking of his Father, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing 
but raise it up on the last day. He doesn't say that of all that he has given me, I lose just a few. No, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now turn to chapter 10 and verse 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then lastly, I want you to turn to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying on the behalf of his disciples to his Father. He's praying to his Father. John 17 and verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves, speaking of his disciples, are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them in the faith. Keep them saved. Keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Jesus is praying to his Father, keep them in Christ. Then verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, or the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We already saw Judas, how Jesus said, I know which one of you don't believe. Judas was never a believer. But those who did believe, Jesus says, I was keeping them in your name. And now I want to look at chapter 18 because we will see Jesus actually in action preserving the faith of his disciples. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So there Jesus is demonstrating he's the one in control. Not these people who are coming to him with clubs to arrest him and to crucify him. Jesus is in control. By the mere words of his mouth, he knocks them flat on their back. Verse 7, Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. See, Jesus is the one giving orders. He's the one in control. And he commands these soldiers who have come to him to arrest him to let his disciples go. 
Why did he do that? Verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. You see, what does that imply? It implies that for the disciples, the trial of being captured and tortured along with Jesus would have been too much for their faith to handle. So Jesus did not allow that kind of temptation to come upon them. And so you see that it is Jesus who is actively preserving the faith of his disciples here. I want you to remember one other facet of this. In Luke 22, remember how Jesus told Peter that Satan was demanding to do what to him? To sift him like wheat, to toss him around. For what purpose? Implicitly, to destroy Peter's faith. But then in verse 32 of Luke 22, Jesus said, But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now after Peter denied his Lord three times, did Peter deserve for Christ to preserve his faith? Did Peter deserve for Christ to keep him in salvation? How in the world did Peter repent in the first place? How did he come back from that, if not by the grace of God, the grace of Christ, keeping him, sustaining his faith, even when it was felt like just one more straw would break the camel's back, when it should have broken the camel's back? So weak was Peter. It was the grace of God upholding him. And it is the same for these believers, these Hebrew believers that the preacher was writing to, and it's the same for us. The preacher says, grace be with you all. It is by the grace of God that we will bear with this word of exhortation. It is by the grace of God that we will persevere in our faith in Christ, that we will continue to follow him no matter how hard it gets, because the grace of God is sufficient for us. It will sustain us. And he will bring us safely home. Our Lord, we've seen so much in your word this morning about your grace and your faithfulness to us, to keep us, Lord, to guard our souls, to uphold our faith, Lord. It is you who have begun the good work in us, and Lord, you are the one who will carry it on to completion, who will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that it is you who have enabled us to believe in the first place, and it is only you who will enable us to continue believing. Lord, we thank you that you have a firm grip upon us, that nothing, not even ourselves, can rip us out of your grasp, Lord. You have, by the new covenant, you've given us a heart, a new heart, that by its very nature continues to repent and believe, Lord. We will never desire ultimately and finally and fully to leave you. Lord, we will, fa- we will fall and stumble into sin as Peter did, but by your grace we will keep repenting. We will keep believing. We will get back up and keep following Christ. Well, Lord, if we, if we don't do that, we prove that we were never truly your disciples in the first place. We never truly believed at all. Lord, I pray for any who might be here who don't know you yet, who are unwilling to bear with your word and the hard truths that come in uh, 
expose our sin, expose our idols, Lord. May you do a work in their hearts to show them that Christ is worth giving it all up for and that because he's worth that, that you will make them willing to bear up under all that your word has to tell them. Lord, your word is life. Lord, we cling to it like that. Please strengthen our faith. Cause us to endure to the end, Lord. By your grace, may you uphold us, and we thank you that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.